You're listening to the All Truth is God's Truth program. In God's creation, all truth belongs to Him. Therefore, as Christians, we must connect all truth back to our triune God in light of His inerrant Word and His creating, sustaining, and redeeming work. I'm your host, Jared Moore. Church, today we're going to be looking at um, the Lord's Supper, particularly what is the Lord's Supper. If you look in your copy of God's Word in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, next week we're going to start a new study. I'm going to start in the, we're going to start going through the minor prophets, so we're going to start with Hosea next Sunday, so y'all can be reading ahead as we look at the minor prophets, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Examining the Lord's Supper, we're going to begin by talking about what the different views of the Lord's Supper are. There's, there's four dominant views in church history and even today concerning the Lord's Supper. Now, the first view is the Roman Catholic view, and it's called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, which they believe that the juice and the bread, um, you know, the priest ushers in the Holy Spirit... Holy Spirit literally transforms the bread into the body of Jesus and the, the wine into the blood of Jesus to where you're actually eating His body, literally, and drinking His blood. And so the Roman Catholic Church does not believe that we participate in the Lord's Supper. There is no Lord's Supper outside of Rome. And so they don't believe that we're participating in it. There's no priest here to usher in the Holy Spirit to transform the elements This is, this, uh, I'm going to read a definition here. This comes from Greg Allison, who's a professor of theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he has a book on just theological terms uh, that's helpful here. But his definition says, um, With respect to Catholic theology of the Eucharist, which is their name for the Lord's Supper, the view of the presence of Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament, under the forms of bread and wine... The bread is, uh, is transubstantiated, which just means changed, into the body and the wine into the blood by the power of God. Aquinas explained this conversion of one substance, bread, wine, into another, body, blood, while naturally impossible, but it takes place by divine power. And so they say, they use the term accidents, the accidents, the smell, the taste, the feel, the appearance of the bread, and wine remain the same, but their nature changes. End quote. And so Rome believes that you're literally receiving grace from the church through partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now back at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, they, they argued that whether or not you had faith or not was irrelevant. But since then, in the New Roman Catholic Catechism, they have emphasized the need for the individual receiving the Lord's Supper to have faith in order to benefit from what the priest is giving. But Church Rome teaches that priests are giving grace. That's what they teach. There's no way around it. I realize you may have loved ones that are involved in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they're unbelievers. Anybody who repents and believes in Christ is saved. Um, but it does mean that they're, they, they are part of an apostate church that does not, treat, does not teach salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That is not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You have to come to the priest to receive forgiveness in the Roman Catholic Church. And that forgiveness only lasts for a little while until you sin again. Then you've got to come back to the priest again and again and again until you die. And then, if you still don't have enough grace when you die, you go to a place called purgatory. And you stay there until you're purified for millions of years. And then eventually you get to go to heaven. But the Pope has the power to empty purgatory because he is the vicar of Christ on earth. He is the head of the church, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Which church, that's, that's blasphemy. There's no way around it. I realize folks say that the Pope is good and things like that. Look, he's a false teacher. There's no way to cut it or slice it. He's a false teacher. And that's what we need to say. We need to be clear about these things. And look, it is okay. You can still love your loved ones even though they are mistaken, <laughs> right? I mean, my, my house, you know, my, my sister's married to a Methodist pastor. My other sister's Church of Christ. My other sister is Baptist like me, and my mom was Church of God of Prophecy. So it's okay to disagree and to be able to come together and still love one another. So that's transubstantiation, which is not the view of this church. Another, um, another dominant position is called consubstantiation. This was made popular by Martin Luther. Lutheran church still practices this and still believes this. And essentially they argue that, um, well, I'll just read this definition. Um, with respect to Lutheran theology of the Lord's Supper, the doctrine, also called sacramental union, that Christ is truly and completely present in the sacrament. Specifically, the body of Christ is represented in, with, and under the bread. And the same is true of the blood of Christ and the wine. Jesus' words, this is my body, are understood literally. And Christ sitting at the right hand of God means that he is present everywhere. So they teach that Jesus, through his humanity, is omnipresent. Which is not something that we teach or believe. Uh, the humanity of Christ is true humanity, which means that his humanity is not omnipresent. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reigning there. Now you could argue that he's present in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, but that is not what they're arguing. They're arguing that Christ is present, distinct from the Holy Spirit. Now we believe he's with us He's here today with us. We brought him here with us because he lives in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And there's a distinction there that is important in order to hold up orthodoxy concerning the true humanity and true divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, so the bread is a symbol. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so this is my body understood literally. And Christ sitting at the right hand of God means that he is present everywhere. Thus Christ is in heaven and his body and blood are in the Lord's Supper at the same time. Is what Lutherans teach. So we disagree with Lutherans on this issue as well. And church, this is important. A lot of, a lot of the bigger churches have kind of 
jettisoned the Lord's Supper and said, whatever you believe about the Lord's Supper, it doesn't matter. You know, if you believe this, you know, none of this matters anymore. And they end up not teaching on the Lord's Supper. They just, whatever you believe is fine. And the thing is that the Bible, you know, the Bible, I think, is pretty clear. You know, we've made it hard on this issue, and we'll, we'll get to exactly what this means. Uh, but here is largely our position. Um, it's the memorial view. Um, it says, with respect to the Lord's Supper, the position that the emphasis of this ordinance is on remembering what Christ accomplished on the cross. This view is usually associated with uh, Ulrich Zwingli, who was a reformer in the 1500s, contemporary of John Calvin, Martin Luther. Um, he interpreted Jesus' words, this is my body figuratively to be, this signifies my body. He further underscored Jesus' following words, do this in remembrance of me, concluding that the bread is a symbol of Christ's body to remind Christians that his body was crucified for them. As a memorial of Christ's crucifixion, the Lord's Supper requires faith. Many churches, for example, Baptist Bible churches, hold this view. And so that is largely our view. Um, but this next view is the spiritual presence, and this is what John Calvin held, and this would also fit in with our confession as well. It says, with respect to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the position that Christ is spiritually present, the bread and the wine are symbols, but not empty symbols, manifesting Christ's presence. Though Christ's body is in heaven and thus cannot be present when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit unites heaven and earth. Thus the church soars up to heaven to be with Christ, or Christ descends to the church by the Spirit's power. This, uh, this position opposes real presence views, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and goes beyond the memorial view, emphasizing a remembrance of Christ's death. And so it's this argument that there is something unique about the Lord's Supper. Right, that it is a special time. It, it is remembering, but it's also more than that. There's actually the special spiritual presence of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that is present with us as we partake. And you could argue that we, there's a real sense where we are seated at the right hand of God, and there's a real sense where Christ is here with us. And so I, I think most Baptists would affirm those realities. It's just, is, the question is, is the Lord's Supper... You know, are you, is there something unique about this to where if you don't participate, you're losing something? And, and that's the question. That's something I want to avoid because, well, we'll, we'll get into that here. Um, but let, let's, let's look at the text. Let's look at Scripture. So we're in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. But first, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so we must agree that there is some form of participation with Christ as we partake of these elements. And we do this with Faith, You know, the big debate in church history was over whether we literally, which is what Rome argued, or half-literally, which is Lutheran, or Calvin, spiritually, or Zwingli in memory, partake of Christ. Everybody's saying we partake of Christ. The question is, in what way? 
right? In what way? In what way do we partake of Christ as we observe the Lord's Supper? And um, we disagree with Rome here especially, um, but we also disagree with our Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ. Now looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 22, let's look at what the Lord's Supper is. What does the Bible say? So the Apostle Paul writing the church at Corinth, you know, they're, they're fussing and fighting. They've got issues among themselves. They were preferring self one another over one another. Oftentimes when the early church would gather for the Lord's Supper, they would have a feast as part of the Lord's Supper because it was a time of remembrance, but it was a time of celebration as well for what God has given us in Christ, for what Christ has done for us. Right, and to brag on him and to enjoy that time as believers. Um, but in Corinth, you know, the, you had the poor and the rich coming and eating together, and the rich were partaking first. Right? Those who were impoverished were being disrespected and treating as less than. And the thing about the Lord's Supper is everybody who has faith partakes. Everybody who's trusting in Christ partakes and benefits of the encouragement and what the elements represent. Like we, we publicly identify with Christ when we are baptized, when we, we get up there and we say that we died with Christ, been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we're showing our faith, displaying it. Well, this displays our faith as well and also displays our need and it praises God that He has been provided. God has met our need for salvation. He's taken our sin away. He has totally cleansed us and washed us through the blood and body of Jesus. His body was broken so that ours wouldn't have to be. Right? His body suffered. You know, He is infinite and through His humanity, He suffered in such a way to be able to satisfy God's eternal wrath towards us to where it doesn't take us suffering for our sin for eternity to satisfy God's wrath because the eternal one on the cross satisfied God's wrath for us. I realize he only suffered for a small amount of time. But that small amount of time is God the Son incarnate suffering. So that blood is of infinite worth. It is distinguished from our blood. The blood of the sinless God-man. Who is of infinite worth able to satisfy God's wrath towards potentially billions of people. If they would but just believe. So in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. And so the point of observing the Lord's Supper with other believers is an act of worship. It's to build up one another. It's to encourage one another. You know, it's to proclaim Jesus' death until He returns. So essentially, you know, church attendance... Worship attendance is about God and others. It's not ultimately about us. It's one of the worst things about modern American Christianity is the way that we try to persuade people to attend our churches is very similar to used car salesmen trying to get people to buy a car. We've become so ashamed of the gospel that we think if we do not put God out there in His greatness and boldness, and emphasize the resurrected God the Son incarnate. We don't think that's enough to get people to come to worship. And it's a tragedy. It's a great tragedy. The only religion where God came to save man, came to fulfill what man could not, and physically rose from the dead and rules and reigns forevermore, 
And we want to emphasize something else to get people to come and worship. I don't see Muslims doing that. I don't see them ashamed of their religion. I don't see them trying to get people to love Allah by getting them to love entertainment. We have to return to see the beauty of what we believe. And just because the world can't see it doesn't mean we change it. What we've got to do is go out there and help them to see the beauty of the gospel. Help them to see the beauty of what Christ has given us. I mean, they can be saved from their sins. Their worst problem in life is their separation from God due to their sin. And they don't have to be separated from God. They don't have to go to hell. They don't have to carry the guilt around with them for this life. God will take every bit of that away and clean them up. If they'll but believe. That is what we must emphasize. There is beauty in that. And we need to help people see that beauty. And so worship is not ultimately about us. It's about God and others. In verse 18 he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, and that order those who are genuine among you may be recognized. <coughs> and so when the church at Corinth came together to observe the Lord's Supper, they were divided based on their status in society. You know, they would have a love feast as part of observing the Lord's Supper. And those with money, with position, with power, they were eating before those who were impoverished, those who were not as high up on the, you know, social status. It's interesting here that Paul says the true church at Corinth were not those who had money and preferred themselves before the rest of the church. But he says it's those who love their neighbors more than themselves by not being selfish doesn't mean that money is bad or having money is bad. It's the love of money. When you think that the fact that you have money makes you better than others, especially in the local church, whenever we are all condemned apart from Christ, what makes us worthy of heaven is Jesus. The only thing we brought to God was our sin. And He gave us His righteousness through Christ. All of us, the rich, the poor the healthy, the sick, those who are high up in society and those who are low. He saves them all. <coughs> you know, Christ said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we're to deny ourselves, not to prefer ourselves over one another. We're to deny ourselves and actually prefer one another above ourselves. And this should be displayed in the Lord's Supper. It should be displayed when we come together to worship. Christ also said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39 that we should love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds and love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, these are, this is, loving God with all our hearts, soul, and mind is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we are third. <coughs> God is first, others are second, and we're third. I realize there, there's, there's a popular slogan, I'm second. But biblically, we're third. God first, others second, we're third. We're third. <coughs> and so 
We must renounce all things in order to follow Christ, including the so-called social status found in society, where people often prefer themselves over others. That must not be named among the church. And the Lord's Supper displays that. There's not a person here who does not need the blood and body of Jesus. Not a person here. All of us. I mean, you, you can, we can think that we're better than other people, but we come and we observe the Lord's Supper and we realize, we're reminded that all of us need Jesus. Oh, there's not, a, there's not a single person here. There's not a single person on earth who doesn't need what we're about to participate in. Every one of us do. <clears throat> and praise be to God that he has been provided. He says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So again, those who had position, power, money, they were eating before the poor during this so-called love feast. And people were hungry and others were getting drunk. So they were drinking in ex excess. And you know, and the wine they used there in the first century was... Um, well, it was very diluted. It's not like today's wine. If you were getting drunk on it, you had to really be throwing it back. I mean, you had to, you had to imagine a gallon of milk, you know, of wine that you're drinking. You know, you had to really be trying to get drunk <coughs> in order to be drunk. But evidently, they were doing that, and they were neglecting the poor. They weren't even letting them eat. So imagine that. Imagine that in a local church, exalting oneself that much, and by not loving their neighbors, and by the way, you're, you know, everyone's our neighbor, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. Right? The rich were preferring themselves and thus despising the church of God. You know, they were humiliating those who were poor. And Paul was upset about it. And so in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 22, there's three things to summarize that Paul says about the Lord's Supper. We come together to worship. We come together to build up. Right? We come together to worship, to build up. We come together in unity as one body in Christ. And we come together in love, not hate, for one another, where we're preferring one another above ourselves. And then Paul tells them that Christ gave us the Lord's Supper for this purpose. And you see it in 1 Corinthians 11. 23 through 26. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so what is our view here of the Lord's Supper? And the memorial view and the spiritual presence view both would be in line with our confession, which is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is what it says. It says, The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. It's a very succinct statement, but you see the emphasis there on symbol. 
So it's not the actual presence of Christ in the elements. So the actual physical presence of Christ is not present in the bread and in the juice. But spiritual presence would be permitted in light of that confessing statement. And also the memorial view. I think, I think everyone would say that it does memorialize Jesus. This is what our catechism here says. It says, what is the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the new covenant, whereby giving and receiving bread and the fruit of the vine, according to Christ's command, His death is dramatically displayed and remembered. And Christians are, by faith, spiritually nourished and matured in grace. And then what is required for Christians to receive the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they come with repentant hearts and faith in Christ, His life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign, that they love and pursue obedience to Christ, lest they come unworthily and eat and drink judgment to themselves. Right, And so the emphasis there on coming with faith and repentant hearts to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm not going to read a, a ton from uh, Herman Bovink here, but I think that he is helpful in understanding this. Um, he refers to the, uh, the Lord's Supper and argued that in the Reformation that there was an emphasis on um, the Lord's Supper being sacramental in the sense of receiving grace as you participate in the Lord's Supper. See, Rome taught that you receive grace through the elements as you partake. But what the Reformers taught was that you receive grace with the Lord's Supper as you partake. And so it's just that one word. Through is Rome, with is the Reformers, and we're part of that Protestant tradition as Baptist. So with, that the Holy Spirit is working with. And so faith, so Council Trent argued that faith wasn't necessary in order to benefit from the Lord's Supper because the priest, you just being there, the priest is giving you grace if you'll just come and participate. And if you partake, you receive grace. But the Reformers said no faith is a prerequisite to benefiting from the Lord's Supper. And that, that is what we believe. We believe that faith is a prerequisite. And actually the, the Reformation pushed the Roman Catholic Church to the right on this issue to where their latest catechism heavily emphasizes grace and faith when it comes to participating in the Lord's Supper. And if you go read the Council of Trent, it does not emphasize faith in participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, but Bavink is helpful in that he says essentially that when we participate in the Lord's Supper that it helps to sanctify us. And I would agree with that. It does help to sanctify us. When, you, when you're reminded of your need for Jesus and you submit as you participate in the Lord's Supper to Christ afresh and anew, that, there is a sanctifying reality where the Holy Spirit is applying that word to your heart. And so in that way, you could call it a sacrament. When you believe, you do benefit from what these elements represent, what these symbols represent. 
And I think that's in line with what Paul says because Paul, he, he ends up getting onto the church at Corinth. He argues that some of them are sick and dead because of how they're participating in the Lord's Supper. So because they have been trampling on the elements and the time that they've been spending together, they actually, instead of being sanctified and maturing in their relationship with Christ as they participate in the Lord's Supper, instead, they were being harmed. They were being judged. So instead of coming together to be sanctified and grow in our relationship with Christ, the church at Corinth was coming together and for judgment. What God had given, what Christ had instituted for the benefit and the upbuilding of the church, because the people were doing it unworthily, it had become a time of judgment rather than a time of grace and joy in the Lord. And may that never be said here. May this always be a time where we come and we sit under Jesus Christ. We sit under the elements. And ultimately, it's really the Word that we're sitting under. But it's not really the elements, right? It's what they represent that we're sitting under. We're sitting under the broken body and blood of Jesus shed for us, which screams out, there is no other way of salvation. We need Jesus and praise God. He has provided Him. Salvation for eternity has been given. And by, by partaking in this divine drama, and it is a divine drama, from heaven, given by God the Son incarnate, to tell us that as we partake, that we must feast on Jesus forever. And we proclaim His death until He comes. So the Holy Spirit uses the proclamation of God's Word through the Lord's Supper to strengthen the faith of Christians in their hearts and mind. And so the Word of God is different from the words of men. The Holy Spirit takes this Word and He saves and sanctifies sinners and He strengthens the faith of believers. And so you do not have to participate in the Lord's Supper to be saved or to be sanctified because God saves by grace through faith in Christ with the preaching of the Word. This is just another way that the Word is preached. It's the same way with baptism. All right, baptism is a divine drama that is displayed publicly to communicate and preach the Word. Right? It communicates that, look, if you don't die with Christ, you cannot be saved. If you are not buried with Christ, you cannot be saved. If He does not resurrect you, so we put you under the waters to symbolize you've died with Christ, been buried with Christ, raised you up to say that you've been resurrected with Christ. If you are not die, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, resurrected with Christ, you're not saved. And that, that preaches, even though it doesn't say anything. The same way as we participate today, we scream out our desperate need for Jesus and that He's coming soon to get us. You realize He's coming soon to lay waste to His enemies. He came first as a lamb to be slain. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to lay waste to His enemies and to rule and reign for all eternity. I mean, He's coming back to get us. He's coming back to destroy the enemies of the church. That's why we've got to go out there into the darkness and speak light. Because the light is coming. 
And next time he speaks into the darkness, it will be to say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So we've got to go seek folks now while they can be saved. Because judgment is coming. The line of the tribe of Judah is coming. And so we, we were reminded of that today as we participate in the Lord's Supper. So in conclusion, you know, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance or sacrament that reinforces our faith. It joins Christians together. It sets us apart from the world. And as we partake, we preach to one another that we all need Jesus. We all have received Christ through faith. And Christ is returning soon to wage war on His enemies and to set up an eternal kingdom of eternal joy in the new heavens and new earth. And we get to enjoy it with Him. Amen. Brother Ken, if you'll come, lead us in a hymn of invitation. And I want to invite you to respond, and then we will enjoy the Lord's Supper together. I've been persuaded, seen at it, I see the Savior, I see His grace is amazing, I persevered to the end.